We are continuing our study in Matthew today, in Matthew chapter 19. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we come to it, that you would bless it to us, feed us on your good word, bring the conviction that's necessary to us as you teach us, correct us, and train us in righteousness, especially on the the, uh, the, the sensitive topic for our time that Jesus speaks about here, I ask that you would suspend our sensitivities and, and let us listen without reacting and uh, without jumping to conclusions before the whole thing is known. Grant us, grant us efficient ears as we hear. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew writes now that it it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only, to the, only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. The first thing that, that we see in the couple, first couple of verses is that the setting has changed. The setting has changed. Um, Jesus has changed his geographical location. He spent the bulk of his ministry in Galilee, in the north. He explored a little bit west of uh, or east of the Jordan River at times. He went west to the Mediterranean coast. He went up by Caesarea Philippi, but he spent the majority of his time uh, in Galilee. Now he's moved down into Judea. He is beyond the Jordan, which would be on the east side of the Jordan River, north of the Dead Sea. It's where John the Baptist baptized. If you look, at, look on Google Earth, look on Apple Maps, look on whatever, a satellite picture, you'll see on the north end of the Dead Sea a green triangle, a green belt. That is the area that's called beyond the Jordan. Uh, the Lord is now much closer to Jerusalem than he had been. Capernaum is about 80 miles as the crow flies in a direct line to Jerusalem. Jesus is now about 25 miles away. He's not going to go back to Galilee until after the resurrection. 
He is continuing his work as before. He's teaching. He's healing the crowds who come to him, and large crowds are coming to him. And we see a change in the chronology of the Gospels. In these two verses, months go by. Matthew 18 takes place five or six months prior to uh, the, the Passover and Jesus' crucifixion. Now we're just a few weeks away from that. So time has continued to pass. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they issue him a challenge. The challenge is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Matthew tells us that they're testing Jesus. So this is not a legitimate question. This is not coming out of genuine concern uh, about truth and about doctrine. It's not coming out of a heart that wants to know God's will. They're testing him. They think that they know. They want to ruin Jesus' reputation with the people. The question that they raise is one that had been debated by uh, the various rabbis of the time. There were two primary rabbinical schools. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. The school of Shammai was extremely conservative. They said that God only commands divorce where there is adultery. The school of Hillel was extremely liberal. They said God commands divorce for any reason a man wants to divorce his wife. If, if there's impurity there, if there's adultery there, if there's sexual immorality there, if she displeases him in some way, if she can't cook, if she's not pretty enough. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about a, 80 years after this that he divorced his wife, put her away, because she didn't please him. And he found another wife. He found a better wife, a woman from Crete, and her family was rich. It was just that easy. The, the Old Testament scriptures don't lay out a marriage ceremony. They don't, they don't lay out a, a procedure for marriage. It was simply a matter of a man and a woman agreeing before the community to be husband and wife. And divorce was just as easy as the man saying to the woman, perhaps in front of the witnesses, I divorce you. Giving her a certificate of divorce by custom. It was that easy. I haven't been able to find any estimates of divorce statistics in first century Israel. I don't think it would have been common. For a couple of reasons, uh, divorce would have left a man single and unable to both make a living and run a home. Running a home was a full-time job. Water had to be brought from a well. Bread had to be made fresh. It, it was a full-time job. If a man with children divorced his wife, she would not take the children. He would keep the children. They were his. But now he had children to take care for. Uh, a divorced man who was living in a small village, a small community, now had to deal with her friends and family which could be difficult, even though he had the technical right, he still has to deal with these people. And then a divorced man is probably going to want to remarry, but who is he going to remarry? Unless he's pretty wealthy, he probably won't be able to find a virgin. He's going to have to marry either a widow, which may not be a bad deal, but he might have to choose between divorced women, which is not really at the time thought to be a great benefit. So while divorce would have been very easy in Jesus' time, I don't think that it would have necessarily been common. 
But it happened enough that the question came up. Uh, While the people of Jesus' day may not have divorced all that common, they had this belief for the most part that a man divorcing his wife is no big deal and it could happen at the drop of a hat for any reason. The point of this challenge is for the Pharisees to try and put Jesus in what they think is an impossible situation. He's got followers who are going to hold to both views, or one of, one of both views. If he says he's going to go with the more conservative option, he's going to offend those who are liberal. If he's going to go with the more liberal option, he's going to offend those who are conservative. They're trying to put Jesus in the position of trying to make both sides happy. Conventional wisdom says don't fall for that. Don't do that. Keep your mouth shut. Uh, For those of you who have seen the musical Hamilton, Aaron Burr says there, talk less, smile more. Don't tell them what you're against or what you're for. Fools who run their mouth off wind up dead. Keep out of trouble and you double your choices. Well, Jesus didn't usually follow conventional wisdom. Let's see what he says in verses 4 to 6. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 1.27. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. And then Jesus applies this. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus doesn't follow the conventional wisdom. He answers, and he gives an answer that no one expected. Should a man divorce his wife only in the case of adultery, or can he divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says divorce is never God's will. It is never God's will. And he takes us not to the law, not to the custom of the monarchy, not to the time of the judges, not to the rabbis. He takes us to creation before the fall. So this doesn't just apply to Israel. This applies to every human being on the face of the earth. Divorce is not God's will. God made Adam first. There was one. He took the rib from Adam's side and he made Eve. Now there's two. And then the two come back together again voluntarily as one flesh and God joins them into one again. Marriage is a picture of God's relationship with his people and Christ's relationship with his church. We're not permitted to violate it. This is an answer that's going to offend both groups. The liberals are going to be unhappy because they don't have the freedom to just divorce The conservatives are going to be unhappy because Jesus is not pointing to the law. He's pointing to creation and God's intentions. The Pharisees wanted to make Jesus tread very lightly over a sensitive issue, as people often do today. Jesus just stomps those sensitivities into the dust. He doesn't sound like a man who's trying to be subtle. He doesn't sound like a man who's trying to keep the public happy. It sounds like he's God himself who's taken on human flesh and has come to shed holy light on human darkness. That's what he sounds like. And that's what he is. We're not told how these words struck the Pharisees. Maybe they were waiting for that response. And they had their answer uh, already prepared. 
I wonder if though, if they were just stunned by this and they kind of shake their heads and, and they're trying to reconcile it. And they finally say, but why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? There's a second challenge. And they, they now oppose scripture with scripture. So the first comment that they make is a misquote. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Or rather, a misapplication. Now they come at him, and they're going to do what so many people do today. They're going to try and use scripture to cancel scripture. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, you and I should always test statements with the word of God. We should always test things by scripture, by what God has revealed. Scripture is the final authority for all things. Using scripture to test conclusions means coming to scripture in its proper context and giving it its proper respect as the word of God. We're we're not challenging the word. We're challenging interpretations of the word. That's not as fine a, a line as we might think it is. Most of the time, supposed contradictions people talk about are just misquoted passages. And if we will just look at both passages in context, we'll see how they complement one another. And there's no contradiction. The law only teaches about divorce one time, which is a little bit surprising. And then it's only a little bit in passing. Deuteronomy 24, let's take a look at it. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she goes out of his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. The Pharisees interpreted verse 1 as saying God commanded to give her a certificate of divorce. We see that that's not what's taking place. What Moses does is is he gives this this series of conditions. And I've got them broken out for you. If a man takes a wife and marries her, that's an if. And if it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, many, many men find their wives to be favorable. And if that not finding favor in his eyes is because he has found some indecency in her. And if he writes her a certificate of divorce, and if she goes out of his house, and if she becomes another man's wife, and if that man divorces her and gives her a certificate and sends it away, or if that man dies, then the first husband can't marry her again. These conditional statements are like links in a chain. The point of this passage is not to command divorce. The point is not to command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce. The point is to say, if you divorce your wife, 
and she remarries, and then that marriage ends however it ends, you're not allowed to marry her again. Why would that be? He, he doesn't say. I suspect it's because marriage creates a one flesh relationship. And when she goes and becomes another man's wife through that conjugal act, they become one flesh. And the first husband is simply not allowed to take her back as a wife. I read one comment, and I suppose that there's some validity to it, that it basically prevents a man from quickly saying, I divorce you in order to go spend the night with another woman, and then returning to his wife and saying, well, I marry you now, and now it wasn't adultery. Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They misquote the word. And they try to use scripture to cancel out scripture. Look at Jesus' answer. Because of your hardness of heart, verse 8 says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. No command. And it's not based on the wife's indecency. It's based on the husband's hardness of heart. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Moses did not command divorce, but he permitted it. Why? Not because of indecency in the wife, but because of the hard hearts of the husbands who were unwilling to forgive indecency. He's not talking about adultery, by the way. And we know that because the law says that adultery is to be punished by death. There's no need to divorce her if she's being put to death. There's a hardness within the husband. There's a hardness within those who would commit adultery or commit immorality. And then there's a hardness that is unwilling to forgive. Some men were making claims against their wives. Moses establishes a process that protects a woman from being abused by a hard-hearted man and treated like property to be discarded and then picked up again. Just for the sake of manipulation or control. Jesus then moves to the issue of marriage after divorce. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and then remarries commits adultery with his second wife. Why? Because... If he divorces his wife for any reason but sexual immorality, there's still a one flesh relationship there. Adultery, sexual immorality, breaks that bond and makes it biblically permissible to remarry, but it's not a command. God never commands men or women, to divorce their adulterous spouses. God hates divorce. That's not me talking, that's the Bible. Malachi 2.16, God says, for I hate divorce. Says Yahweh, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says Yahweh of hosts, be careful then to keep your spirit that you do not deal treacherously with your wife. Does God really expect people to stay in an unhappy marriage? 
Well, let's let's set aside, aside some likely truths, such as the marriage probably was unwise to begin with. And it takes both husband and wife to create an unhappy marriage. And it's likely that neither one is living a godly life. In the cases of those, then absolutely, yes, God expects people who get married to stay married. They've entered into a one flesh relationship. He permits divorce in cases of adultery, but he never commands it. He permits it because of our inability to forgive. Hardness of heart can be taken two ways, I think. It could be taken as a willful willful hardness of heart, an anger, a hatred, a contempt for the other. And hardness of heart could be taken as simply an inability to recover. There, There are people who suffer such betrayal, not only in marriage but in other relationships as well, that they're simply not able to recover. Would Jesus be able to perfectly forgive? Yeah, we're not him. We're not him. So I I want to just stop for a moment. Every family in here has been touched by divorce. Everyone. Perhaps you've been divorced. 25% of adults have been involved in a marital split that either ended in divorce or was a separation. Something like 40 or 45% of first marriages end in divorce. That number goes to 60% for second marriages and 73% for third marriages. You've either been divorced or you've got somebody in your family who has been, almost certainly. Almost certainly. It's important we understand that Jesus did not come to destroy, but heal. Matthew 12, 20 says, A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. So what do people do who have been wrongly divorced and perhaps remarried? If there's a sin there, they confess it to the Lord and they commit themselves to his grace and his mercy. And they remain faithful to him. If they've remarried, they commit themselves to their spouse for the rest of their life. Our first church in California, a a man approached me and they were new to our church and he wanted to have lunch. We went and had lunch and we're eating at a restaurant. And, and he says, what, what do you think of somebody who gets divorced as a non-Christian and then becomes a Christian? Can they get remarried? And he starts posing these hypotheticals. So I said, okay. Okay, so here's my hypothetical answer. And I kind of crafted this answer. And at the end of my answer, I said, I don't think that that man has biblical grounds for remarriage. And he stood up in the restaurant and began yelling at me. Because as I developed this fairly complex scenario, by the providence of God, I described his life in detail. I got him calmed down, and I said two things. I haven't done a background check on you. I don't know who you are. Which leads me to number two. 
If all of that's correct, it's by the Spirit of God, and you should listen to him. You should be faithful to your wife. Jesus preached the holiness of God in every circumstance of life. He did this not to destroy us, but so that we would know how much we need a Savior and that we would know the love of the Father in sending us the Savior. He did this so that we would know how necessary it is to acknowledge our sins before God and be forgiven. He never crushes those who confess. He did not come to destroy It is true that the wrath of God is poured out on the proud and presumptuous, but his mercy is poured out on the brokenhearted. Just acknowledge him. Well, at the end of all of this, then the disciples speak up. The disciples said to Jesus, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. It's a shocking statement for those who have spent three years with Jesus that men would say, you know, if I can't divorce my wife just because she burned the roast, I don't think I should be married. We need to cut them a little bit of slack. It's how they were raised. It's the culture that they were raised in. They were raised to believe that marriage was so fragile and and unstable that if, if you don't have an escape plan, there's no point in starting. Jesus' answer is not to say, yeah, you're absolutely right. Jesus' answer is to say, singleness is not the answer. Celibacy is not the answer. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. They said it's better to be unmarried, but Jesus says, but not everybody can accept that. Very few. Now, they're not thinking of singleness like people today think single. 53% of Americans right now are married. 7% are cohabitating. That's 60% of Americans who, whether legally married or not, are living under the roof with somebody else. We're not to think that the remaining 40% who are single are celibate. The vast majority of them have intimate relationships beyond that. They just don't share an address. They share beds, but they don't share an address. A study that I was released last year that I, I found said by the age of 44, only one-third of 1% of American adults had never engaged in the kind of behavior that produces children. I'm trying to be careful. One-third of 1%. While today there are many people who are single, There are not many who are virgins. And there are not many who commit themselves to that way of life because of the difficulty of it. Jesus cites three reasons for lifelong celibacy. He says some are simply never interested in marriage or that kind of a relationship. That's from the womb. There's nothing that happened. That's just them. He says some have been made eunuchs. Again, with the interest of being careful, this is the, a reference to male slaves who are treated by their owners as a stockman might treat a bull. 
or a stallion in order to control breeding. And he says, some have committed themselves to celibacy for the sake of serving the kingdom. But that, in that day and in our day, is a very small number. He's not suggesting that people be celibate. He's saying, if you can, go ahead. But the answer to the difficulty of marriage is not celibacy. So the answer to the difficulties that we see there are not follow some rabbinical or some religious interpretation. It's not use the scripture to fight the scripture as though if, if you can do that, you can win. Neither is it to say simply, I'm just going to reject everything that God has done in creating mankind. The answer is to be faithful, to trust his word and to live according to his word. As we bring this home, I want to touch on two issues. I want to touch on the issue of divorce, and I want to touch on how we deal with challenges to biblical truth. Again, I don't think there's an adult alive who doesn't know someone who has been divorced. Almost 50% of marriages will end in divorce. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. It's treated that way by many. It shouldn't be. It involves unimaginable pain and conflict. It affects the families, friends. It's an agonizing thing to go through. But as I said before, many of those marriages were ill-advised to begin with. It takes both people to make a marriage fail. It takes both to make a marriage work. They're not going to work, generally speaking, if, if at least one of those partners is not living a godly life. And, of course, it's much better if both are. If you have been divorced and you consider it a sin, it is no greater sin than any other sin. Take it to the Lord. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Be forgiven. And be at peace with your God. And commit yourself to following in obedience. The heart of this passage is not divorce. Jesus did not initiate this conversation. He didn't say to his guys, come aside, let's sit down, let's find a shady spot. I need to talk to you about this. Because the culture is just rotten when it comes to this issue. So let me teach you about this in depth. It came up because he was challenged by men who were trying to trip him up. And so part of the lesson for us is what do we do when people come to us and they say, I found an issue, I found a contradiction, I found something you can't answer. We see that today. They wanted Jesus to have to walk on eggshells around people on an issue that was very personal and very sensitive. Jesus refused to do that, and he took them back to Scripture in its context. Have you not read? What an irony. At that time, there's no printing press. To read the scriptures took a lot of effort. Most people did not have a copy of the Torah in their home, yet they were responsible for reading it. They were responsible for knowing it. In a sense, Jesus says, forget the rabbis. Forget the culture. 
Forget the commentaries, forget the sermons, forget the counselors. What has God said? In the simplicity of his word, believe that. Live according to that. If you get into conversations about the Bible with people, you're going to hear honest questions about apparent contradictions. Someone might say to you, I I don't understand. If God is love, how can he judge the world? And they really want to know what the answer would be. Our responsibility is to explain how that works and to do so with as much care and as kindness as we can. Other people are going to try and trip us up. We might talk about the judgment of God and they'll say, ah, but God is love. As though the God who wrote the Bible talked about judging in the Bible and then said he's love in the Bible and didn't understand that they canceled each other out. As though they could say on the day of judgment, ah, but your love, and God would go, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. What we have to do there is the same as what we have to do in every circumstance. Go back to what scripture says in its context. What does scripture say? What is the context of the passage? What is it about? What's the point? Too many people in our time get their theology from t-shirts and bumper stickers and tweets. There was a a pastor who was doing a Q&A on homosexuality at a secular college. And he was simply asked if homosexuality is compatible with Christianity. And he began to answer and the person interrupted him. And so he let the person finish, and then he resumed his answer, and the person interrupted him a second time. And then the pastor let him finish, and then he said, in their brilliant words, sometimes it takes me more than one sentence to formulate an idea. In other words, you you need to let me finish. We need to be free to say that. And when we can't give somebody three words as to why their idea is unbiblical, Say to them, you need to let me explain. We need to keep going back to the word of God. Beloved, we need to rest in the grace of God. We need to rest ourselves on the truth of his word. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that these men tried to trip up the Lord on this this issue. Uh, I thank you that they, they tried to use scripture to cancel out scripture and failed to do so. I thank you that the disciples brought up this, this weighty issue that they didn't understand so that we could hear from the Lord Jesus himself what you think about marriage and what you created marriage to be. We acknowledge, Lord, that we don't have the ability to forgive perfectly. And sometimes in our sin, as we face the sin of others, we're simply not able to heal enough to be able to restore the relationship. We acknowledge that. What we won't do is say that that's okay. We'll acknowledge that that's a failure because of our sinful flesh. We'll give you grace, or we'll give you thanks for your grace and your mercy. 
And we will praise you for your kindness to us, that you don't force us to do what we are unable to do. But Lord, let us keep setting our sights on the high standard of your holiness. And when we fail to meet that standard, recognize this is why we need a Savior. And this is why you set your Son. I give you thanks for your kindness and your grace. We ask that as we continue to gather in the potluck after church, that you would bless the food for us and bless our fellowship and our time together for your glory and for our eternal good. And in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.